I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon. Hey everybody, how's it going? Hope you're good, hope you're well. Welcome back to another edition of the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast, part of the 90 Min Football Network. Coming to you today from a hotel room in Paris. So you'll have to accept my apologies with regards to A, the video quality, B, the audio quality. I don't have a microphone with me. Um, I should have packed one. I plan to pack one. But in sort of the rush to get to the airport and catch my flight on Friday evening um, after what was a, a much busier day than I anticipated, I just forgot if I'm being completely honest with you. So um, here I am uh, just going straight through the laptop. So, again, apologies if the quality is not as good as it normally is. Uh, but I did want to get this podcast out nice and, uh, and promptly uh, because I think it was a really significant day for Arsenal yesterday. I thought the result was fantastic. I thought the performance uh, was really, really good as well. And actually, um, I think the performance was better than than what the outcome was. So I think we were more valued than a 1-0 win. Um, nice to get a 1-0 win for different reasons, because it shows kind of a different uh, side to Arsenal and a side that people have maybe criticised in the past. I mean, there's been a few pundits of late that have said things like, well, this Arsenal team can't win 1-0. I think Tony Cascarino had been saying that uh, just recently, that we're the type of team that need to fight fire with fire, that um, as a result of that, get involved in these games where it's kind of, well, I'm going to outscore you. And maybe, in his opinion, um, we didn't have to, or, or we didn't have the ability to kind of be that little bit more resilient. Well, he's been proven wrong. The last few weeks have been different. Obviously, Arsenal have conceded way more goals than they would have liked. And even last week, when we had that sort of huge morale boost in victory at Aston Villa, we looked vulnerable defensively. Yesterday, we didn't. Yesterday, we looked as though we turned the corner in that sense. And we'll come on to uh, discuss the performance of individuals. We're going to talk the ruled-out goal. We're going to talk VAR, Jorginho, uh, the dominant display. We're going to be talking about all of that on this edition of the show. Uh, but before Scott gets annoyed, because he says, leave a like so Harry doesn't have to beg for likes. There you go. I don't have to say it. Thank you, Scott. Uh, leave a like, please, guys, and subscribe, of course, to the channel if you are brand spanking new. Um, I do want to say a few hellos. Um, let's say hello to Dez, to Derek, to Popeye, to Steve, to Patrick, uh, to Wesber, to DJD. Um, to Scott, who's with us, to Harvey, to Mafia Boss, Henry Guna, uh, Amrit is with us, uh, Johan uh, is there too. He says, I was very nervous watching it though. Yeah, but that's that's what happens with, um, with being involved in a title race. I think you naturally sort of make everything a much bigger deal than it is. I mean, if you watch the game back, and so I watched the game in full, I haven't had a chance to watch it back again in full yet. Uh, but I have watched the highlights a couple of times from various different outlets. And you always look at the highlights afterwards, I think, and think, yeah, actually, we were really dominant and the game was never in doubt. I mean, Leicester were limited to so little. They were nothing as an attacking outfit and, uh, and nothing in terms of an attacking threat. Now, James Madison was out and I think that really helped us. I think that was a big part of why Leicester looked toothless at times. They weren't really able to expose the spaces in between the lines that I think actually we're more vulnerable and without Thomas Partey in the team. Um, but thankfully for us, you know, the kind of the stars aligned for once in that they were without a, a key player, a player that definitely would have exposed those spaces and probably would have punished us. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, we'll um, 
We'll get into it, as I say, in a little bit more detail. Um, just having a look to see how many of you are with us right now. Wow, incredible numbers. Thank you all uh, so, so much, as always, for your support of the podcast. It really does uh, mean the world to me. Again, uh, for those of you joining a little bit late, why am I not in the studio? Why am I not at home? Uh, I am in Paris because I'm working this weekend. Uh, I've been working on the CAF Champions League um, which is obviously the biggest club competition in Africa. Um, I had the pleasure of covering the game yesterday between Esperance Tunis against uh, Zamalek, who are two of the biggest clubs in Africa. The atmosphere was electric. It was unbelievable uh, to kind of see those scenes. The football was OK. It wasn't the greatest game in terms of quality. There were a couple of really exciting moments. But I guess for me, it was a really... Um, proud day because those games um, with my commentary were being beamed out uh, across B in sports, which is obviously a massive broadcaster. And, you know, as you know, um, a lot of these companies, they do buy the feeds from the world feed. So I am here doing some work for the CAF world feed. And I've got another game to do later on today. So I'm back in London uh, tomorrow morning. Uh, but yeah, that's why I'm here. Um, nice trip. A little bit boring when you're on your own, I've got to say. Like, there's only so much walking around you can do aimlessly. There's only so many times you want to go and sit in a restaurant or in a bar by yourself. But yeah, one more night and uh, and I'll be back in London. Uh, Matt G says, um, Harry, you're in the city of love and you didn't take your wife. Rookie mistake. I must admit that I did consider um, doing that. I did consider saying to her, well, I did say to her, you know, if you want to come over, um, let's do it. But we just couldn't make it work with the kids and stuff and there wasn't anybody uh, around at the weekend to have them both for the entire duration, which would have made it worth her while. And also I'm working as well. So there would have been uh, periods of time where she'd have been completely by herself, probably bored in the way that I've been a little bit bored, if I'm being honest, uh, when I've been by myself. But yeah, you're right. Um, maybe next time. Fingers crossed they'll have me back and, um, and then we can do it then. Right. Anyway, let's dive into the Arsenal game. Let's talk about the team selection, which I think surprised a few people. Now, I know a lot of Arsenal fans uh, online over the past few weeks have kind of been calling for Mikel Arteta to try something like this. And that was born largely, I think, out of a little bit of frustration around Eddie Nketiah's performances. He just seemed to go off the boil a little bit. He hasn't been converting in the way that we know Eddie Nketiah can. He struggled a little bit in that sense. And he's looked a little bit tired, to be honest. You know, we're asking him to do a lot of work. We're asking him to put in a lot of effort. And given the injury to Gabriel Jesus, there hasn't been an option to rotate. You know, he has been the only recognised centre forward that Mikel Arteta has in his squad. And so he's had to play week in, week out. And I think what's happened is that Mikel Arteta has looked at Martinelli, for example, who it felt like had just burnt out a little bit. And then he gets a breather, he comes back in and he looks lively. And even if it was as a substitute, you know, coming back into the team has given him that little boost that he maybe needed. And I think Mikel Arteta probably looked at that as a case study, looked at the fact that it's a young player with a lot of expectation on them and, and obviously looked at someone like uh, Enketia and thought, yeah, this could be the case with him also. So he took him out of the team. And, and he put Leandro Trossard in alongside Gabriel Martinelli. So Arsenal lined up with Ramsdale in goal, White, Saliba, Gabriel Zinchenko, which I think we all expected, Odegaard, Jorginho, Xhaka, which again, I think we all expected, given that we didn't think that Thomas Partey was going to be fit enough to start this one. And then the front three was Saka, 
Martinelli on the flanks with Trossard through the middle. What was really interesting at points was Trossard and Martinelli being able to interchange positions. That's what that option gives you. You know, both of them are really comfortable playing from the left-hand side. And both of them have something to offer through the middle. Trossard was dropping into sort of slightly deeper pockets in the first half, uh, trying to get involved in the game in the way that Enketia does, uh, trying to facilitate and create spaces for Saka and uh, and Martinelli either side of him. Um, and I thought he did that to really, really good fit effect. But if we fast forward to the goal uh, that obviously decided the game in the end, you'll see uh, Trossard pull out to the left-hand side, do a nice little bit of trickery, uh, to kind of get the defender off balance, put it through his legs and play Martinelli, and who starts on the left. But as soon as he sees Trossard go out there and pick up the ball, he just senses that there is a channel in which he can break into. He just senses that there's an opportunity to really put the burners on and drive into that space. And that ball comes inside. Martinelli gets on the end of it. It takes a really good first touch, which always helps. And then he opens up his body and just side foots it into the far corner. It's a fantastic finish a centre-forwards type finish, which is why a lot of people have now come away from the game saying, well, Martinelli should be the centre-forward. It's interesting because Trossard played there for periods of the game. I did think there was a bit of interchanging going on, so I'm not going to say that either one of them was stuck to their rigid position, but it's interesting that people have come away saying Trossard is not really a centre-forward. Martinelli is when Trossard was the one that, you know, was, I guess the one who started there. Again, as I say, I think they both played that role at different times in the game during different situations and different scenarios. But I think overall, you'd say that Trossard was probably uh, more of the centre-forward than than Gabby Martinelli was, at least at the start of the game anyway. Um, obviously, Arsenal uh, named Alexander Zinchenko the captain, um, which was a nice touch and something that was suggested by... Martin Odegaard because of uh, the fact that we'd got to the one-year anniversary of the Ukraine war. Um, those of you that saw my post on social media last night would have seen uh, that I was standing in front of the Eiffel Tower and that had been lit up in uh, blue and yellow, uh, the Ukrainian colours, um, to kind of represent that as well. So it's obviously something that's being felt by a lot of people at the moment. It's a time to kind of reflect on what's gone on over the last year, um, how many lives have been lost unnecessarily, um, off the back of some aggression. It's a horrible situation. And and obviously Martin Odegaard felt that with Alexander Zinchenko being such a big part of the squad, they kind of owed it to him to pay some sort of tribute to what was going on. And and Zinchenko was given the captain's armband and, you know, a nice touch from Odegaard. And it just shows the togetherness that we have within the group, but also the selflessness of our captain at the moment, who was willing to pass that on. Uh, to somebody else because of, um, you know, situations and and, and scenarios outside of, of Arsenal Football Club. So that was a nice touch as well. Um, obviously, before Arsenal did break the deadlock, just after half time, they did have a goal ruled out. Um, and that has sparked a lot of debate about VAR again. Now, just correct me if I'm wrong. I was under the impression that the new directive around VAR was that they were going to set the bar higher in terms of what they actually interfere in and in terms of what they actually intervene with. Was there anything clear and obvious in the lead up to that goal that warranted the goal being ruled out? I don't think so. I think you really have to nitpick to find Ben White holding the goalkeeper. I think it's such a... 
I, I just think it is is so over the top and it's so ridiculous. And I'd be saying that if it was the other way around as well. I, I don't think what Ben White did had an impact on the outcome. I don't think what Ben White did prevented Ward from being able to save the shot eventually that came from Leandro Trossard. I don't even think it prevented him getting the ball clear. I think Ward is a very, very poor goalkeeper who's out of his depth at this level, if I'm being completely honest. And I just couldn't understand why the VAR was so determined to step in uh, in that instance. But then equally, you know, you look at that and you go, OK, look, sometimes these things go against you. Fantastic finish by Trossard, by the way. He would have been livid at the decision. Ben White kind of had a look of guilt on his face as if he knew uh, what he had done. He knew that he was involved. He knew that he had held the goalkeeper. But I don't think he thought um, that, you know, they'd go back and, and nitpick that and find that and, and make something of it. But I think the most frustrating thing about this whole VAR discussion, again, when it's centred around this game, is not even um, about the goal being ruled out. It's that if you're going to find something like that worthy of ruling a goal out for, then how have you then allowed Bukayo Saka to be pulled down inside the penalty area um, and uh, and that go unpunished? It. It just makes no sense to me. Um, you know, that's where I'm struggling. So if the bar is really high, then you let the goal stand and you don't give the penalty. If the bar is low and you are going to rule out the goal for something that I think was really minor, then you have to give the penalty on Bukayo Saka because he was rugby tackled. That was an, an unbelievable challenge. How anybody looked at that and thought no penalty is beyond me. I really, really don't know. Uh, Matt says... Keepers get a lot of protection, except if you're Ramsdale. Agreed. You know, if you go back to that, was it the Aston Villa corner? Uh, I think it was Douglas Luiz whipped the ball into the penalty area and Ramsdale was was blocked off from getting to the ball. It was kind of the same thing. Um, and yeah, it's, I don't know. It's the inconsistency that I always say drives me absolutely mental. But look, we don't have to dwell on that for too long because obviously Arsenal won the game and that's what matters. Um Alex says, if you're in the air and someone pushes you, it's just a natural reaction to grab what's doing the pushing, i.e. Ward's hands. Uh, Boyce says, yep, Saka got rugby tackled. Uh, what else have we got? Um, Andre says, to be honest, if White wasn't holding the goalkeeper's right arm, the keeper goes for the ball with his right hand and he's probably able to clear it. Saka's incident was a pen, though. I don't get that one. Yeah, Andre, look, I'm not even sitting here saying... Um, that I'm not even sitting here saying that the goal definitely 100% shouldn't have been ruled out. I just don't understand where we are with this. I just don't understand the directives that we keep getting. And then the fact that they're, on, they're not applied in, in sort of the real life scenario. So if you've set the bar higher, then for me, that doesn't really tick the box. If you're going to nitpick and you're doing that every week, then absolutely there's justification there to rule out the goal. Uh, but it's the inconsistency for me, not just across the board, but in individual games. The, the, the inconsistency within an individual game is what drives me absolutely mental because it's the same officials, right? A lot of decisions in football are subjective. One referee might look at something and think one thing, another might look at something else. But in the same game, for a referee to look at two incidents very, very differently, it, it's weird to me, you know, Um two similar incidents in terms of their severity to look at them differently uh, when you're the same team of officials just doesn't make any sense. 
Um, Salah Hadeen says consistency is lacking. A more blatant hold was the holding of Ramsdale against Aston Villa. Completely agree. Um, Adam says that it was a clear foul. Good VAR decision. Let's be real, please, guys. Got no problem with that. As I say, if that's the decision that was taken, but the Saka one, you know, is a problem. You know, um, that's that's the issue for me. Um, if we take it on uh, to Matt's comment, uh, he says, Harry, at first glance, I also thought the Saka challenge was a pen. But when you start it down, you can clearly see that it's Saka and we don't get penalty shouts. I love that. I actually thought you were going to come up with some explanation there. Um, one second, guys. Apologies. Um, room service trying to get in to clean the room. Fair enough. Um, what else have we got here? Uh, doo -doo 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 -doo. Alex says, it's about the context of other calls the referee has made this season. There's zero consistency. Completely agree. Um, and ironic Arsenal says, it's so frustrating sometimes. Uh, I want to break my TV set. <laughs> yes, housekeeping, Johan, um, wanting to get in. <laughs> Steve Stone says, please don't tell me. <laughs> That's the mistress. <laughs> Can you imagine if that was the way you got caught on a YouTube stream? Oh my god! No, um, it was it was housekeeping. <laughs> Remember, it's an hour ahead here. Um, it's eleven twenty-two here uh, in Paris, so uh, the time zone is a little bit different. Uh, <laughs> oh, you guys have made me laugh with that mistress comment. Uh, what else uh, have we got? Um, uh, some people are uh, going or are mentioning and talking about the, the lack of lines, um, you know, that we, we saw when it comes to uh, the VAR decision that ruled out the uh, what would have been a second Arsenal goal. I think it was offside. Um, I don't think you needed the lines to see it on that occasion. So I'm not going to really dwell on that, to be honest with you. But I haven't seen any angles or any suggestions that it, it wasn't offside. I think people are just getting annoyed as to why we didn't see it, um, see it kind of clarified in that sense, uh, in the way that we do in other games. Room <laughs> service stuffers, housekeeping stuffers knocked me off my uh, trail of thought. And some of you guys' comments are cracking me up as well. Um, Simi Superstar says, Harry, are these referees racist? I mean, I can't say that, uh, you know, based on what, um, based on it not being given against Saka, I, I can't say that, man. Um, you know, it's not something that there's any evidence of. So, I, and, and I'd rather not label people as something that I don't think they are. I, I've never thought that the officials in this league have been um deliberately corrupt um i've never thought that they were uh, what well i'm not going to say i never thought that there were times where i thought that uh but what i think now is probably the best way to address this is that actually what we've got is just an incompetent group of officials and that's as far as it goes for me um right so we had the goal uh, obviously disallowed we've talked about that uh the offside one i think was offside there's no no real discussion there for me we've talked about the use of VAR I want to talk a little bit again about Jorginho uh, because again uh, Jorginho in possession I thought was fantastic I thought he was brilliant I thought he was a big reason as to why we were so dominant and I thought he had a really really good game on the ball again 
I do think, though, that Jorginho out of possession is a problem for us. I do think that in between those lines, in the transition, we are so much more vulnerable. I would say 50% more vulnerable than we are when Thomas Partey's in the team. That's the difference for me. It's a big difference. You know, you can wax lyrical about Jorginho's performance. And, I, and I've been um, one of the people that when that signing sort of came to light or was announced, you know, I said to you guys, look, it's not the worst signing in the world. He's coming in as cover. That's what he is. That's what Leandro Trossard has come in as well. OK, he's been used a bit more um, in the rotation. Jorginho, for me, wouldn't have played if Thomas Partey was fit. But, um, you know, what we've done is bolster our options a little bit. And I maintain what I've always said about the Jorginho deal. He is a better option than anything that we had prior to going into that window. So he was a better option than Elneny, who obviously, unfortunately, picked up that injury and is unavailable anyway. And he's a better option uh, than Lokonga, uh, who we've now allowed to go out on loan to Crystal Palace. So he is an upgrade in that sense. And I think he really helps in terms of our dominance in games. I think I read something earlier that we've had something like over 64% of the ball in all of the games that Jorginho's played. But that is a little bit of a red herring because what has also happened with Jorginho in the team is that we've been vulnerable at times defensively. And that's for the reasons I've just mentioned. He isn't quick enough across the ground. He sometimes reads things really well and steps out of that deep lying midfield position to intercept and to confront people and does that to brilliant effect. But at times, if he misjudges, which all players do and gets it wrong, then he is in a really vulnerable position because he doesn't have the mobility to get back and he doesn't have um, the speed across the ground. So he's not the perfect fit. And I never, ever said he was. He's not the perfect fit. He's a better fit. Uh, in terms of that he gives us half of what Partey gives us. He gives us that ability in possession that, for me, Elneny doesn't give us. Lukonga doesn't give us either. But he doesn't give us the athleticism part that Thomas Partey brings. And that is obviously um, why I think, as I say, he's not the perfect fit. But, you know, he is what he is and he's experienced and he's helped in the dressing room. Clearly, Aaron Ramsdale referenced that uh, just last week as something that was really, really important. Um, you know, is there a debate? Is there an argument that you could play, um, I don't know, Jorginho and Partey in the same team? Now, obviously, really positive to see Thomas Partey back, albeit just for six minutes at the end of the game. Um, you know, it's good to see that he was fit enough to at least play a part. And that suggests that he's on the road to recovery because we are a much better team uh, when he's in it. But... Um, you know, could they could they play together? Could Jorginho and Partey play together? I think the only way I could see that happening is if Jorginho was to play in the Granite Xhaka role, if a point comes uh, where Granite Xhaka needs a bit of a rest, a bit of a breather. He seems to be like, you know, the Iron Man in terms of how regularly he plays, how many minutes he gets through and, and all of those things. Jorginho, I wouldn't mind him being in a little bit more of an advanced area because we've talked about that progressive passing and, and that ability to open up teams, which is key in certain games, especially when you face a low block. Um, but I'm not I'm not keen on seeing the two, Jorginho and Partey, that is playing as like a double pivot because that would impact and affect the balance that we have in that midfield. Now, there may be games, perhaps away from home, where it calls for that. But generally speaking, I think one of the reasons we've been so good and so effective this season is because of the, the fact that we now have two eights. And we can only have two eights because we have one good enough six in Thomas Partey. Jorginho 
He's a good enough six in a lot of games, but won't be in every game. And whereas Thomas Partey is, and and that's the difference for me. Um, you know, so I don't really want to see us revert into a double pivot unless maybe we're 1-0 up in a game uh, last few minutes. That's the way that Mikel Arteta thinks is best to try and shut it down. But yeah, it's not something I would start with because it it goes away from what's got us to where we are so far this season. It, it sort of takes us away from, um, you know, the balance that has obviously helped us and, and put us in a really good, strong position. Let's take some of you guys' uh, questions here. Uh, Ty Gunasaurus says, Jorginho is slow and out of position on the counter-attack, but far better than Lokonga. Uh, Harvey says, good that our backups are getting some game time. Also, um, in case our starters get a long-term injury. Uh, Ironic Arsenal says, people forget that we signed Jorginho as a backup and not a starter. It could go down as the most shrewd signing of the season. That's the key point. He wasn't brought in because he's better than Thomas Partey. We've had this discussion so many times, but I always feel like it's relevant because every time I go on social media after an Arsenal game, there's the group of people that are sitting there talking about how well Jorginho did and highlighting all the positives and all the positive statistics, how many ball progressions, the pass completion rate, all of that stuff. And then you always get another group that are sitting there going, yeah, but he only won this many jewels or, you know, he covered this much ground. So it, it is still a very divisive topic and a very divisive subject, which is why I feel it's worth a conversation. But you kind of... To judge whether a signing is successful or not, you have to define at the start what the expectation is. And if the expectation around Jorginho was to be able to call upon him in the absence of Thomas Partey to help us through games. And at £12 million, that's the total value of the deal, by the way, not what we paid up front. At £12 million, you just have to kind of assess it for what it is. And I think, you know, it was Arsenal showing really good preparation going into the transfer window in that they had targets that they clearly wanted that were at the top of their recruitment list. But once they recognised that those deals couldn't be done, they had alternatives to pivot to and to to move for very, very quickly to make sure that we didn't, like last uh, January, end up with nothing and then that be our undoing moving forward. Uh, CM says, look at his interceptions and tackles in the game. His issue is players can run off him. He doesn't have that initial speed to stay with him, but he's a better choice than Lakonga and Elneny. I think that's a good way of putting it. Um, what else have we got? Uh, Ty Gunasaurus believes that he's better with Tommy Asu in the side. Um, Terry Abbott says, Harry, if we had signed our number one targets and they were performing like the cheap plan Bs, we would be very happy in my opinion. Yeah, that's, a, that's another good way of looking at it. If the players that we had at the top of the list and that we as a fan base desperately wanted to see had come in and had the impact that Jorginho has and that Trossard has as individuals, then we probably would be looking at it and going, yeah, this this was good business and, and we're excited and positive about the future. So I agree with that. I think that's a good and valid point. Uh, just a quick reminder before we go on, if you haven't done so already, please do leave a like on the video. It really, really does help. There's over 250 of you with us right now. Let's try and get up to 100 likes ASAP. I think we're about, uh, about 25, 30 away from that at this minute. So please do uh, leave a like on the video. Just generally talking about the performance, um, dominant is the word I would use to describe it. And where I think Arteta hit the nail on the head after the game was in that 
Yes, we have a lot of the ball and we control the ball and we limited Leicester to basically nothing. I mean, I'll just bring up the statistics in front of me just to make sure I'm giving you correct facts here. But where is it? Hold on, match stats. There we go. Leicester City had one shot. One shot at home and not a single shot on target. If that isn't the definition of dominance, I don't know what is. Arsenal enjoyed 66% of the possession. Where Arsenal were lacking a little bit is that they only managed 10 shots, only two of which were on target. So I think when Mikel Arteta um, spoke post-match, he said that it's good that we're dominant, it's good that we're controlling games, but what we can do better and where we're missing a little bit is being able to convert that dominance or from that dominance produce better, higher-level goal-scoring opportunities. That's where we were missing um, a little bit yesterday. That's where we were lacking a little bit yesterday. And I think, you know, it obviously gives you encouragement when the manager recognises that, but also communicates that to you as a fan, because then you're not sitting there thinking, is it just me? No, actually, you know, that's right. I saw that. Mikel Arteta saw that. Great, happy days. Um, so, yeah, there's lots to um, lots to be positive about. And, you know, you look at the fixtures coming up now and you feel like we're going into a really, really important run. Now, we went into a run of fixtures not long ago that we thought we were going to win. Uh, Everton, um, you know, was was a, a bit of a downer. Brentford at home as well. We take on Everton this Wednesday night, um, which is going to be a massive game. And then we play Bournemouth. Uh, we've got Sporting Lisbon away in the Europa League, which I suspect Mikel Arteta will make some changes for. But when you look at the upcoming fixtures in the Premier League, so let's just run through these. Everton at home, Bournemouth at home. You want six points from those two games, right? Um, you know, you, you want you want that. Then you take it forward and you look at Fulham away on Sunday, March the 12th. Difficult game because Fulham have been in good form but you still want three points from that. Then we've got Crystal Palace and then we've got Leeds at home in back-to-back -back games. So that's one, two, three, four, five games. That means there's 15 points available. If we took 13, I'd be pleased with that. I'm allowing for a draw at Fulham because I think that that is uh, a potentially difficult game. A lot of teams have gone there and struggled this season. So, you know, again, I always I pinpoint Fulham as the one that I think we might have to concede a little bit in. But as long as we get that points return, I don't really care in which way it comes. Um, and, and that's what I like to do. I like to look at groups of games and set targets rather than saying every week we need to win this one. We need to win this one. I think that brings more pressure. Um, I think as a group of players, that brings you more pressure because knowing that you have a, a, a points target over a group of games means that even if you do... Uh, let something slip, you have the opportunity to put that right, uh, unless you're aiming for maximum points, which I think is something that you can't always aim for in the Premier League because of how competitive the division is. So I think that if we took 13 points from the next five games, we'd be in really, really good shape uh, moving forward. So, yeah, um, look, I'm going to take uh, a few questions. So start popping your questions in the chat, put a little cue at the beginning of them, uh, get going on that. And I will just quickly talk about uh, the importance of the clean sheet because I think that was massive. Um, you know, I just think obviously it was a well-earned clean sheet because as I say, we didn't give Leicester a sniff. It wasn't the type of clean sheet where you look back and you go, yeah, well, we kept the clean sheet on paper, but actually we gave up a few opportunities and we were quite fortunate. This was the perfect shutout job in terms of 
limiting Leicester. And I, I know people will keep talking about James Madison. I, I heard Gary Lineker on Match of the Day saying that when he saw the team news, he texted his sons, who are obviously Leicester City fans, saying, no Madison, no hope, which kind of tells you how important or, or how important they view him as Leicester City fans. You know, he is key to their creativity. Um, but this was a complete shutout job from Arsenal. There was still enough talent in that Leicester side to cause us a problem. And we were able to close them down, um, shut them down, limit them to very, very little. And and in as a consequence of that, one goal, um, one goal for us was enough. But yeah, uh, let's take then some of these questions. Uh, Salahuddin says, Declan Rice as an eight. Yeah, I'd like Declan Rice to come in. Um, I, I've, I sort of made a video during the transfer window when we were linked with him. And I talked about the fact that, in my opinion, he's not the perfect fit for Arsenal as a six. And a lot of people disagreed with that. But there were reasons I felt that. And, um, and the more I watch him, the more I think he is more of a, Granite Xhaka for us if we can get that deal over the line. He'd be the upgrade on Granite Xhaka probably that a lot of people want to see. Um, so yeah, I'd be open to that. You know, I'd be happy to see that. Uh, I'd like to keep Granite Xhaka as well, by the way. But um, yeah, it's going to cost a lot of money to get Declan Rice in. Charles Watts was on the show earlier in the week and he talked about his belief in that Arsenal were going to go big to try and make that deal happen. And with West Ham uh, not enjoying a great season, I know they won uh, yesterday, but they're not having a good season, generally speaking, that might open the door uh, to a Declan Rice exit. It might put him in a position where we're able to get him for cheaper because he's pushing that little bit harder. Uh, let's see what else we've got. Uh, Scott says, who do you start on the left against Everton? Um, I'd probably go with Martinelli and I'd probably go with Trossard inside again. I think that they did a good enough job to warrant that, but I think Mikel Arteta will want to freshen it up because obviously we've played on Saturday, we're playing on Wednesday and then we're playing again at the weekend. The following midweek, we've got a Europa League game. So I think that Mikel Arteta will want to um, will want to keep things fresh. I think he's in a place now where he looks at the squad and he looks at some of the options and he thinks, I can rotate to a degree now. In the beginning of the season, I thought the, the lack of rotation obviously was a positive because we were winning games and people felt that a main reason of that or a big reason of that was because the fact that we didn't rotate and that we were quite consistent in our selection. But I think uh, for me, I think that the ability he has now to freshen it up as a result of the business we've done in January will, will make him feel more comfortable in doing that. And I, I think he may bring Nketiah back into the side. Uh, Matt says, how would you feel about officials explaining decisions to the crowd and the broadcaster via a microphone as they do in American football, ice hockey and basketball? I think it would help a lot. Yeah, um, I do as well. I've had this debate and discussion with friends a lot um, over the last few years. And one of my friends always says that the problem is with football is that football fans are not mature enough to accept a decision, even when they have it explained to them and even when they have the rule or the law of the game that has been breached in the official's opinion highlighted to them, they still won't accept it. And I think that is true for a lot of people. I think there are a lot of people that will still go, no, that's nonsense, and will argue that. Because a lot of our decisions in our game are subjective. But at the same time, I know I personally would like that. I would find it easier to accept decisions, not because I'd always agree with them, but because... 
if I understand why someone's got to a decision, I can at least have some sympathy towards it rather than just being angry and frustrated. It doesn't mean I'll agree. And especially in the heat of the moment, it doesn't mean I'm going to take it well. But uh, to understand why they've got to that point, I think would be, yeah, I think it would be helpful. Um, Selgea says, when was the last season we didn't get a red card in the first 24 games? What has changed this season? It's a really good point. Um, I think it's probably to do with the fact that at the beginning, when Mikel Arteta came in, um, you know, we, we didn't really know where Arsenal were going. We were a little bit lost, OK? We, we couldn't really work out what his end goal was in terms of his vision, in terms of his playing style. Clearly, when you look back at it now, the way he was setting up the team, lining up the team uh, when he first arrived, based on the players he had, uh, was not what he had in mind and, and wasn't what he uh, wanted to get to. Um and then we got to this point last season where we were closer to that. And what Mikel Arteta was desperately trying to drum up was this passion and this fight and this desire and this emotion. And he kept talking about the crowd and he kept trying to get the crowd involved and he kept trying to get players like really wound up and fired up for things. But at times we went overboard and we went over the line. And what you need to find as an elite level sports person is... The, the level of motivation can be fueled. Sorry, your motivation is there, right? Your motivation is to win. If you weren't motivated, you wouldn't be an elite level sports person in the first place. But what Mikel Arteta tried to do in order to up the level of players was to fire them up. But with some players, they'd get too fired up. They'd cross the line they make rash decisions and they make decisions in the heat of moments that will cost us. What you've got now is a team that is showing emotional maturity, a team that is able to put a lid on those emotions when they need to, but also use them as fuel when they're running a little bit low in terms of energy and use it as something that can push them that little bit further. So it's about the psychology of it all. And I think that Mikel Arteta now has got this team to a place where there is that fire, there is that passion, there is that fight, there is that desire, but there's also that ability to kind of keep a calm head in the really key moments and to keep your cool and composure that was missing. And I think, I guess that comes with maturity. So a lot of the young players uh, are getting better at that. So Gabriel is a prime example of that for me, right? Um, not the youngest player, but still a relatively young footballer go back a couple of seasons. And he was very rash at times and he would make silly decisions and he'd get involved in things he didn't need to fast forward to now. You're never going to take that out of Gabriel completely because that's how he is. But I think he's a lot more emotionally intelligent and a lot more emotionally mature and it's made him a much better defender. I mean, his performance again yesterday was, was fantastic. I think, um, you know, for me, he's, he's, you know, people say that Saliba has been a revelation and he has, he's been great and he's surpassed a lot of people's expectations. But over the last few months, Gabriel, with the exception of one off game against Manchester City at home where he made a stupid pass, got caught out by Haaland a couple of times, I think he's been fantastic. I really, really do. Uh, Mohammed says, uh, crucial win. The main positive is that we had the clean sheet. But the worry is that Odegaard is not the same player shining and affecting games like the first part of the season. When he shines, we deliver. Thoughts, Harry? Um, I think that teams identify Martin Odegaard now as our most creative outlet, you know, and, and 
And as a result of that, they they come up with plans and, and ways of, of nullifying him. And often that is shut down the space in which Odegaard likes to operate in, get loads of bodies around him, close him down, make it difficult for him. I just think that's what happens when you're a great player. And, and what Martin Odegaard needs to do is find solutions uh, to those uh, situations. Mikel Arteta as a manager needs to find tactical solutions to that as well. But what we have now in this Arsenal team is players in other areas that can contribute. Bakayo Saka, Martinelli, Trossar, Xhaka's got a few goals this season. Um, you know, we've, we've been able to add goals from other parts of the pitch. And, and with Jorginho playing in that midfield, we've got a bit more creativity uh, from a deeper position. So I think we've got different solutions and that's what you need to be challenging right at the very top. Martin Odegaard does drop off from time to time, but you know that he's got the quality to impact the game and you know that he'll be back. So I wouldn't worry about that um, too much. Um, one second. Um, I beg your pardon. Um, what else have we got in the chat? I don't know where that sneeze come from. Uh, Tom Gardner says that uh, Gabriel is a monster. Gavin says Saliba's off in this summer, 100%. I don't think so. I really don't think so. I don't think it'll be long before you hear of a new contract for him. Um, name says, to be fair, Harry, it's not Saliba or Gabriel being unbelievable. It's how perfectly they complement one another. And I think that's a really good point. And I've talked about this before um, earlier in the season when we were all like kind of in awe of how well William Saliba just slotted into the team. One of the things I kept saying was that what you've got here is you've got one defender who likes to be on the front foot, likes to be quite uh, aggressive, closing people down, coming into the back of people in Gabriel. Um, and then you've got William Saliba, who's just that little bit more composed, who likes to sit off that little bit, watch what's going on and, and relies on his reading of the game rather than his sheer physicality. What Saliba also has, though, is uh, the ability to be physical and quick and strong and powerful when he needs to be as well. And that's what makes him such a fantastic um, such a fantastic, um, yeah, player to have and centre-back. Uh, Johan says, don't you think all the players that went to the World Cup, barring Saka, came back worse? Gabriel, who didn't go, seems to be a different player since. Um, yeah, I think you could argue that some of them look a bit tired and a little bit fatigued. And you've got to remember, this was unprecedented. We'd never had a World Cup in the middle of the season uh, like we did this time. So there was always a risk of that having an impact. I think it has. Um, but look, we're still picking up results and we're still picking up points. And that's what's important uh, at the moment. It wasn't, you, you're not going to, it's very rare that you're going to win a Premier League title unless you're Manchester City, who can make lots of rotations and always bring in the top um, players, the, the, the classiest players, the players with the most flair to replace the previous ones. There's always going to be a point in the title race where you have to just dig in. And I think Arsenal are going through that a little bit at the moment. Uh, doo -doo 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 -doo. let's take this one uh, from name again uh, this is the final one I'm going to take because I'm going to dash I'm going to go and get myself a cappuccino not very Parisian is it well some sort of coffee and a croissant because I had a croissant here yesterday Oh, completely different to the ones you get at Tesco Express let me tell you that uh, he says Mr Stark thought Trossard was brilliant so fluid would you keep the same front three for Everton I probably would um, but I think that uh, I think that Mikel Arteta will probably rotate it because of how quick the turnaround is. So I think there's a good chance that you see Eddie and Ketia back in the side uh, and one of Trossard or Martinelli 
uh, being rotated out. Now, that's not what I would do, uh, but that's what I think uh, Mikel Arteta will probably do if I had to guess from this from this early stage. But yeah, anyway, also substitutions have just become a massive part of the modern game, haven't they? So managers maybe don't look at it in the way that they did in the past. Maybe there isn't as much importance on starting a game as there was back in the day because you can now make five subs. So yeah, uh, that could play a part as well. But look, guys, um, thank you so, so much for tuning in. Again, apologies about the lack of video quality and the lack of audio quality. Um, I am on my travels, which has made it that little bit more difficult. But um, I hope that you've enjoyed the show regardless. A massive, massive win for Arsenal. We felt like we were back last week with that win over Aston Villa. It was a real shot in the arm, but we needed to follow that up. Um, Leicester City were a side that we all went into the game knowing had lots of attacking capability, we benefited from James Madison not being available. Um, nobody had any doubts about our ability uh, to cause them problems. The question was, could we limit them? And so given that was the biggest question going into the game and the fact that we've come out of that game having limited them to just a single shot, none of which were on target, I think is Arsenal passing a test. I think it's Arsenal ticking the box. And I think it's Arsenal saying to people, yeah, look, you know, we can win 1-0, despite what people say. Is Martinelli a centre-forward? Should Leandro Trossard play at centre-forward? There's a big debate that's going to come over the coming days, I'm sure, with regards to that. Uh, but I'm going to leave it there for now. I'll be back with you guys uh, tomorrow when I'm back in London. Um, so until then, take care of yourselves and stay safe. Goodbye. I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon.